Well, good morning. I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 37. We have two psalms today. I'll be referring to Psalm 79 as we go, but we're going to read first Psalm 37, verses 1 through 20. And for the next few Sundays, we'll be looking at a topic that actually occurs frequently in the Psalms as we work through this book of Psalms, and that is the topic of anger. It is frequently mentioned in the Psalms, whether it's the anger of individuals, anger of nations, anger of the Lord. And we'll try to understand its various angles as we look at these Psalms, and some questions we're going to ask. When is anger appropriate or inappropriate? How do we recognize anger? How do we even define anger? How do we overcome inappropriate anger? Uh, When we use words like hurt and frustrated or irritated, are we just justifying sinful anger? And so I think what we're going to find is that there is a lot of wisdom in the Psalms as well as the rest of Scripture on this particular topic. Well, to begin, like I said, we're going to look at Psalm 37. So if you would stand, let's recognize that this is God's inspired, authoritative word. Beginning with verse 1, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, or the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous, he gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. and He knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we are ever ready to be influenced, affected, changed, motivated, inspired, exhorted, admonished, all the things that happen as we pay attention to your word. I pray that that would be the case with us today. Help us to be attentive to what your spirit says to us. Help us to be receptive to your work and change in us. And we do pray that you would work in us to will and to do your good pleasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Thanking you already for your word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these first 20 verses of Psalm 37, they're about envy and anger. Verses 1 through 7 advise us not to fret when the wicked prosper while we do not. We're told that the wicked will soon fade away like the grass while we will be with the Lord forever. And we are exhorted to delight in him, to not envy others. And then verses 8 through 20, they advise us not to fret also, but they start to focus more upon as the wicked plot against us or take advantage of us to realize God is our vindicator, that the wicked will perish under the judgment of God. And so we're told in verse 8 to refrain from anger and forsake wrath because it tends only to evil. And a question I want to ask today and in, in the next couple weeks is, is, does that mean that it always tends to evil? Is anger always bad? How do we handle this all-too-natural response towards persecution and injustice and mistreatment? Because we will see David and other psalmists in the book of Psalms continue to wrestle with this tension. So we want to address it because we'll see it in the Psalms to come. So first, what is anger? Maybe that seems like an easy question, but if you were asked to actually take a moment to write down a definition, do you think that would be easy? Things are made, I think, challenging when we realize that God himself is described as being angry, and it adds this nuance to anger itself, right? Interestingly, the Greek word for anger, there are a few of them, mean both steaming or smoking and swollen. So clearly they're describing what often happens to people when they get angry. And and certainly we know from our own modern cartoons, right? When we want to picture someone angry, it's smoke coming out of their ears and a swelling of their face. Well, the Hebrews also used words for anger that described A flaring of the nostrils is one of them. And the other is burning of the throat. So all the words in the ancient languages that describe anger are utilizing these physical descriptions. And we do the same in English. We talk about seeing red or boiling or seething. And they remind us that anger has a component that involves the body. Internal and external changes like increased adrenaline or flushing of the face or increased heart rate and more. But also often external action, anything from yelling and shouting to violence. Anger has a physical component, certainly has an emotional component. That's usually what we associate with anger, but it also has a mental component. As the late counselor David Powlison writes, even if no words or actions come forth, the angry person thinks intensely, you are ridiculous, this is not fair, I can't believe she did this to me. In that internal video camera, he writes, replays clips from what happened or may script and rehearse imaginary scenarios of violent retribution. In fact, he concludes the entire criminal justice System, except for perhaps a defense attorney for the accused, plays out in the courtroom of the mind. There's the investigator, 
There's the prosecuting attorney, the witnesses, the judge, the jury, the jailer, and the hangman. This judicial attitude is written into the nature of anger. It is an attitude of judgment, condemnation, and displeasure at persons or things. And so what we see is that anger, which we have yet to fully define, affects the entire person, the heart, the mind, and the body. For example, the first time that we see the word anger or a term similar to it, like wrath, is found in Genesis 4. So all the way at the very beginning. Where we read, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Well, if we, if we think through what we were just talking about, heart and mind and body, mentally, Cain is interpreting God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice as an injustice. Emotionally, he feels rejected, hurt, frustrated, irritated. Physically, we read that his face fell, and of course later he kills his brother. And his story, Cain's story in Genesis 4, also illustrates that anger is directed at someone or something. That someone can be ourselves, but it usually is other people, even God. Occasionally, anger is directed at something, like the Israelites being angry at the manna they're given, or Balaam beating his donkey when it won't move. The Bible describes many people who are angry. Genesis 6, 11 says the world in Noah's time was filled with violence. Genesis 39, 19 says that when Potiphar heard the false accusation of his wife against Joseph, when she said that he tried to force himself upon her, it says that his anger was kindled. The Israelites during the Exodus were angry about all sorts of things, but particularly about things that they felt were challenges to their personal welfare, right? They're angry when Moses goes to Pharaoh, When Pharaoh increases their labor requirements, they're angry when they get fed up, so to speak, with not getting the figs and grapes and pomegranates that they once had. Moses, in turn, is angry at the Israelites when they make a golden calf. Later, when they complain about the lack of water, you will find anger in almost every book of the Bible. There are lots of angry people in the scriptures. And guess who is the angriest person of all? God. God is the angriest person in the Bible. And so to understand anger properly, we have to understand his anger first. Look at these passages. Exodus 32, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and it may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Isaiah 13, 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy the sinners from it. Lamentations 2, 3, The Lord has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy, and he has burned like a flaming torch or fire and Jacob consuming all around, right? Angry, 
Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what about one of our morning's passages in Psalm 79, 5 through 7? How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you. And on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. And during our midweek Bible study, we've been reading through the major and minor prophets as we go chronologically through the Bible. And guess what? God is really angry in in those books too. He's angry against sin and against the idolatrous nations. And the fact that God is the angriest person in the Bible tells us something vital about anger, and that is this. Anger can be perfectly right, good, appropriate, and the only fair response to something evil. It can actually be the loving response on behalf of those who are victims of evil. And so it's no surprise that Jesus Christ is filled with anger when he encounters people who pervert the worship of God. He overturns money changers' tables. He calls pharisaical hypocrites, vipers, and, and more. Now, when we think of angry people, we often think of people who are out of control, but that is not God's anger because he always responds appropriately. And rightly to every situation. As Ezekiel 18.23 reminds us, he doesn't take pleasure in having to destroy the wicked. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And then a few verses later he asks, So house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? And so we must say that There is something that is just and righteous about God being angry. But he's also the most loving person in the Bible too, isn't he? Most loving act of all being the sending of his son in the face of his wrath, in the face of his anger against sin, to send his son to deal with sin and mercy for his people. We often fail to see that God's anger and love are entirely consistent with each other as different expressions of his goodness and glory. B.B. Warfield once wrote, Jesus burned with anger against the wrongs he met with in his journey through human life as truly as he melted with pity at the sight of the world's misery. And it was out of these two emotions, Warfield says, that his actual mercy Proceed it. I want you to process that for a little bit. You can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Because God loves, he is angry at those who harm those whom he loves. Before I talk about that some more, particularly in the context of our morning psalms, do we have enough information now to form a biblical definition of anger. We've seen that it involves the whole person, heart, mind, and body. We've seen that it is not necessarily evil in itself, for God is angry and wrathful against sin. We've also seen it's directed at someone or something. 
typically with the intent to remove or punish or retaliate, even destroy, as we see Cain killing Abel. The world in Noah's time filled with violence, Saul desiring to remove David later, God destroying sin. And so when you look at secular definitions of anger, I came across this definition, which is a fair representative of most dictionaries. It says, a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility that often expresses itself in active opposition to an insult, injury, or injustice. But I don't think it quite hits the mark, mostly because it doesn't have a right perspective from God's perspective. And so given what we've seen, perhaps we might use author Robert Jones's definition where he says, anger is the whole person, I like that, active response of negative moral judgment against perceived anger. And so it incorporates several things. It incorporates that idea of heart, mind, and body. It speaks of an active response which reminds us that anger is not something that we have, it's something that we do. It has a purpose and a direction. It is a moral judgment against perceived evil. And the definition helps us to understand when our own anger is appropriate or inappropriate. Because you can remember times where in your past experiences of anger, you, how it's involved your whole person, And it's not hard probably to remember many of the times that you acted out in anger. But how often was that anger a moral judgment against perceived evil? And for many of us, the perceived evil is often less about evil as God perceives it, right? An offense against his holy righteousness, but instead evil as we see it. Something that inconveniences, hurts, or challenges us. I think one other thing this definition does is it helps us deal with ways that we often try to disguise anger as something else. For example, we may say, I am frustrated, or I am upset, or even I am hurt. But these alternative expressions are often the same thing as anger when we see that they, too, are whole-personed reactions to some perceived unfairness or injustice. And I come back to the question I began with this morning. Psalm 37 says to refrain from anger for it tends only to evil. And asking is that universally or always true? Are there exceptions, especially given that God himself is often angry? Well, we'll answer that most completely in future weeks, but we first have to understand better God's anger. We've seen that he is angry. We saw a few Old Testament passages that described him as angry. There are a few others in the New Testament as well, like Philippians 3.18, it says, such ones are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, and God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, God will in flaming fire take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In our psalms today, 
both David and Asaph acknowledge that God in anger will destroy his enemies. David in Psalm 37, 20 said, remember the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. Asaph in Psalm 79, 12 writes, return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which, which they have taunted you, O Lord. So clearly David and Asaph, while they discourage us from being angry, and this is important, encourage God to be angry. You notice that? While they discourage us from being angry, they encourage God to let loose his anger. And it's important to recognize that distinction. Earlier in Psalm 79, in verses 1 through 4, it says, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. And then in, later in, in verse 8 and following, Asaph hopes that the natural response of God to this injustice is not going to be just calm tolerance, right? It's going to be that he remembers his people with compassion, but also that it will be anger towards their enemies. Do not remember Against us, our former iniquities, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Right? So there's the hope that God is compassionate towards us. For the glory of your name, deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. But you can see the rest of that. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood that was described in those first verses of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power and preserve those doomed to die. Act, Lord, be angry against the nations and against our enemies. And I alluded to this earlier, but love for his people naturally causes God to be angry towards those who harm them. And so we can identify with Asaph's cry to God, asking God to come to his rescue by avenging the outpoured blood. Asaph knew God's love for him would motivate the Lord to be his vindicator. But note also his plea there in verse 8 at the beginning. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Asaph realizes that God is fundamentally angry against sin. And sinners are not just Asaph's enemies. Asaph was sinful, wasn't he? We're sinful, aren't we? Should that make us concerned about God's wrath towards us? Well, the good news is that while the seriousness of God's wrath should make us very concerned to soberly confirm that we are indeed in the faith, 
Beyond that, you do not need to be concerned about God's anger towards you, just as Asaph or David, and here's why. First, if you are a child of God, then the anger that your sin deserves fell upon Jesus. It wasn't that God looks or looked the other way from your sin, but rather his anger at your sin was already fully expressed and directed towards his son. Once and for all, Christ died for you in order that you might live. What's even more profound is that God chose to love you. And the expression of that love was both to gift you with faith and to express his anger against your greatest enemy, which was sin and death. And second, while God's anger is no longer against you, he acts as a father and disciplines you so that you will be made more holy and more like his son Jesus. We're told that he works in you to will and to do good pleasure. He gives us his spirit that you might have the strength and grace to turn from sin. He he awakens your conscience so that you will, like him, have a greater hatred towards evil and your own righteously angry response towards perceived evil. It doesn't always feel good, though, when God, like a surgeon, continues to cut away that which would distract and disable you. You endure trials, you suffer his rebuke, you feel guilt, but in all of that, doesn't the deliverance and mercy and encouragement and clear conscience feel good? They do. And thankfully, like the psalmist, we are able to cry out to God to forgive us, just as Asaph did in that verse, forgive me, free me from sin. We're able to pray that he would gift us with Christ's righteousness and then to ask him to turn that anger against sin towards those who hate us and hate the Lord. Sometimes we are like Asaph in Psalm 79, we're asking How long? Meaning, how long will you wait to express that anger? How long will you just be angry against sin? Because while God is long-suffering and patient, he is allowing sometimes the wicked to prosper. And that is a constant question in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? But the answer is at least this, that we can trust that he is for us. We can trust that he has a purpose, that there will be a day. And then a third reason that we can be confident that God's anger is not towards us is that he is glorified in saving his people and in judging his enemies. Romans 9, 22 through 24, a challenging passage for many, has this interesting statement by Paul. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Well, we could spend weeks unpacking that particular passage. But do know that Paul says that God endured and was long-suffering towards the Pharaoh. Remember how the Israelites were crying out, how long? And part of the answer is that 
he had planned a time. It alludes to beforehand. He had planned a time that when he judged the Pharaoh, it would actually be to display to the Israelites. That's a very interesting audience, isn't it? You would think that it was to display to the Pharaoh and his army his power. But it was actually to display to the Israelites his glory and power. And when God's people saw the Pharaoh and his army buried under the waters of the Red Sea, they knew that day that God is sovereign. And in that moment, they saw his power, his holiness, his mercy, his plan, and so much more. And the Lord wants you to see the same things when he judges sin. Because he is glorified that way. He wants you to notice his holiness and his power and his justice while he shows you mercy and grace. And that is a great confidence that you have that if you are his child, that he will not be angry towards you. And when you struggle through difficult times and your enemies seem to be getting the upper hand, remember the stories of Scripture and trust that his anger will punish and destroy his enemies in his timing. And because he loves you, his child, and is glorified in your deliverance from suffering, he will be glorified. And you will see it. And you will worship him. Evil will not win. Or as David says, the wicked will vanish away like smoke. So in summary, unjust treatment by the wicked should not lead us to be fretful but rather should lead us to repentance and hope and faith. And that's easier said than done, right? We can see that tension in Psalm 38. David says there, when he feels oppressed by his enemies, he says, I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my sin. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. We see how he is anxious. We see how he is despairing. We see in the story, right, with Nabal, how he is moved to anger. We see all these various responses. That's the one side of that tension, that weariness, that that anxiousness, but on the other side of it is confession, repentance, it's trust. And we'll talk more next week about how we often fall on the sinful side of that balance. We'll see some of the Psalms by David that have him reflecting upon how he's making poor decisions and how he is failing in this particular area. But for today, let me end with these encouragements. Some people are troubled by what are called imprecatory psalms because these psalms encourage God to be angry against the enemies of the psalmist and and to wrathfully judge and destroy the wicked. But I hope you see today that God's anger is actually your hope. God's anger is your hope. It's your hope because God's loving anger resolves the entire problem of evil in a way that brings him glory and you joy. I'll quote Pallison again. 
He says, the God who is love justly condemns evil, severs the power of remnant evil, brings relief from suffering, and protects us from ourselves. This is the message of the Psalms, he says. And he calls it that royal road into the heart of redeemed humankind with its otherwise inexplicable interweaving of joy and sorrow, hope and anguish, confidence and fear, contentment and anger. I hope that these truths today make passages like Colossians 1.21's wheat, where we read, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, and, and you can read that as you were once God's enemies and he was wrathfully angry against you, that he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the act of Jesus Christ so fully accomplished peace with God that from now on forever you are holy, unblameable, and unreproachable in his sight. Why? Because every sin with which you should have been punished for that God was wrathfully angry against, Christ bore. And so we understand even better a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.18 where we read all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That gospel news that Christ reconciled us to God while we were at sinners is the same good news that we must deliver to others for whom Christ died. The anger of God is a terrible thing from which we have been saved. And we should desire that others be warned of that anger and judgment as well. And the last comment, if you do not have a full picture of both God's love and his anger and a right understanding of what it means to be righteously angry and why that is the opposite side of the coin, the same coin as love, you will fail to fully understand the Psalms and by extension the whole Bible. God is fiercely wrathful, as we read, but he is also profoundly loving. And he preserves and protects those whom he loves. And if you are a believer, the Bible says that God remembers your sins, past, present, and future, no more. He does not allow any knowledge of your sin to affect his treatment of you. And as a result, you have access to his throne. And because of Christ's work of reconciliation, All of that is made possible. The one whom David and Asaph call upon to exercise wrath and judgment will not turn his fierce gaze towards you, but rather expends his sovereign, loving energy in leading you to glory. It's such an amazing statement, isn't it, in Romans 5, that if he gave himself for us, will he not in his life give us that much more to preserve us? That he is our intercessor, that he is our high priest, Unless I serve you, you will not be clean while Christ continues to serve us. And if that doesn't excite you, especially when you realize the fierce wrath of God, if that does not excite you, that you stand in grace before the throne of God in peace, and that God is expending his 
energy and his sovereignty to preserve you and keep you there, then there's nothing that I can say that will excite you. But thank God for his work in your life and in mine. Come back next week for a continuation of our look at anger as we continue with the Psalms and turn our gaze towards our own struggles with sinful anger. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your blessing upon us. Lord, we thank you actually.